This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I can imagine if I saw a poster like this hanging up in the poster hall, even if the title caught my attention, I would probably walk right past it. No, you still would be there reading, (laughs) even to this day. Ocean City, baby. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we explore five myths that you probably believe about poster design. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 195. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, something feels different this week. It feels like 2019, (laughs) roughly, to me. We are podcasting like it's 2019 because I see you three feet from me. I don't know how to do this anymore. Normally, you're on the other end of a Zoom meeting. It's weird. It feels like too much in my space, Dad. Uh, We are recording in the same room. Yeah, and and you're down from wherever you live to down to where I live, and uh, we figured we may as well get together to actually record this episode together. So I'm excited to see you. We're not in my basement, so things are moving up. (laughs) That's true. Uh, New listeners may not realize that we recorded probably roughly the first 140, 50 episodes of this podcast during the first five or six years in person uh, at my house or your house, and only during the pandemic did we shift to Zoom, and then I moved to a different state, and we continued that, but feels like uh, feels like old times. I'm going to need you to move into a different location, <laughs> <laughs> go into a different space. Well, we actually did have to figure out the technology. I thought, do I need to Zoom from the downstairs of your house to the up- you and the upstairs of your house? But we figured it out. We got it working, and we actually did get together this week. We went out uh, to... A great little bar at the top of a hotel, looked out over the city, and you ordered a very special drink, which we're going to talk about today. I did, Dan. Uh, You sent me in to get our next round of drinks, and I thought, I want something different. And so what I ordered was a drink that I had never heard of until I moved to the state of Maryland. And once I moved to Maryland, I started seeing this drink everywhere, and it is called the Orange Crush. Sounds fruity. Yes, and I will say, when I, I moved to Maryland, and I went to a bar, saw this on the menu, and mentioned to the bartender, you know, I've never heard of this drink before. I've been to my fair share of bars, but I've not heard of this drink. And apparently, it is a drink that was invented in Ocean City, Maryland, along the coast. And so, I really wasn't sure, Dan, because I realized the drink popped into my head, the Orange Crush, something that might be fun for us to try. But then it dawned on me that I was in Durham, North Carolina, was the bartender going to actually have any clue what I was talking about if I ordered an orange crush? He's going to punch you in the face and throw you out. <laughs> that happens from time to time. So this was a good sign, Dan. So I walked up to the bar and I said, Sir, can you make an orange crush? And I kid you not, Dan. He looked at me and he said, Ocean City, baby. <laughs> so I knew we were Amazing. in good hands. <laughs> he did say that. <laughs> and you brought it back. Tell people what's in it because it, it was crushed ice and a vaguely orange color, but not bright orange. It didn't look like the soda orange slice or whatever it is. It's not that color orange. It looks like orange juice, maybe. Yeah, it has an orange juice appearance. And and as the name suggests, it's a very orange-forward drink. And so the recipe varies a little bit from place to place. 
But the, the main ingredients are either a citrus-flavored vodka or plain vodka. And I actually did notice as he made the drink, it was a, a plain vodka. Boo! With, uh, with an orange liqueur, typically like a triple sec, sometimes some orange bitters, and some orange juice. So orange on orange on orange. Well, it was very good. It was very refreshing. I don't feel like you could taste the alcohol, which maybe makes it a little bit dangerous. But that that crushed ice, the orange juice, very easy to drink. Um, I feel like I didn't get the true experience, though, because it was not an orange, orange, orange combination. It was plain, boring vodka. Yeah, I am pretty sure uh, when I've ordered this drink in Maryland that it does come with the orange-flavored vodka. And could, you, got, could you tell a difference? You've I, had I, multiple I could, of these. I could. I would say that this the drink that we had was a little lighter in flavor, a little uh, watered down is not the right word, but yeah, a less intense a less intense orange flavor. But how is it different than a screwdriver, just because of the triple sec? I think the triple sec, and sometimes they put the orange bitters in there as well. Um, I honestly didn't pay that much attention. Um, and, and I think one thing that's important... Oh, sorry, Dan, I missed uh, one, one important ingredient. Uh, it's usually finished with uh, a little bit of lemon-lime soda. Oh, not orange. Yeah, so I think that's where a bit of the sweetness comes from, is finished off with that lemon-lime soda. I feel like I need to try this in Ocean City. Like, I, I don't feel like I got the true experience. It was delicious. Yeah. It was a great drink. But I don't feel like I got the true experience of an orange crush. So uh, schedule that, and we'll have to do that another time. Hopefully this whetted your whistle for uh, orange crush. <laughs> <laughs> Very prominent H's in that sentence. All right, what else do we have to talk about today? Well, we want to thank our sponsors at Promega. If you have career goals in mind, but you want to make sure that you and your PI are on the same page, then you should create an individual development plan, or what we call an IDP. An IDP ties your responsibilities to the learning objectives and professional growth that you hope to achieve. If you want to learn how to write an IDP, go to promega.com slash helloIDP. Sounds great, Dan. Let's get on to our topic of the week. Dan, we are going to explore a topic that we've talked about a little bit on the show before, uh, posters. Yeah, posters. Um, you know, it's such an important form of scientific communication. And I don't know what you remember about your first poster, Josh, but I feel like I didn't get a lot of instruction about how to start or how to do a poster. And I, th I think I probably wandered out into the hallway where there were some posters tacked up and I kind of like, oh, somebody did this and they put the title at the top and they had some sections. I probably followed that, uh, but I don't think I, I had an expert walking me through this process. But today I'm going to share an interview I did with Zen Falks, who is uh, basically an, somebody who cares so much about posters that he created this website, betterposters.com, a decade ago and talks about scientific posters on this website. So that is not all he does. You'll hear more about his background, but he's been thinking about this process for a long time and has some myths that a lot of us, these traps that a lot of us fall into because we assume this is how posters are done. Uh, he's going to kind of dispel those myths for us. So take a listen. Today, I am joined by Dr. Zen Falks. Zen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And you and I are going to talk about posters something that you are an expert in. You have literally written in the book on it. I'm hoping that you can introduce yourself to the audience and let them know how you got to be where you are. Sure. I am a biologist by training. I do 
invertebrate neurobiology and lots of other things with, with invertebrates. My research is the proverbial mile wide and inch deep. So I've done lots of different things on lots of different species. I also got interested in writing about posters just as self-defense because I had seen so many bad ones and I had also made so many bad ones. So I started a blog called Better Posters, plural, more than a decade ago. And there was a need for that, apparently, because that has become the thing that I am best known for. You know, so I've published, you know, many research papers and lots of topics and and all of that. And I can go to a conference and people say, hey, you're the poster guy, aren't you? It's like, <laughs> That's great. Yes, yes, I'm the poster guy. <laughs> Forget I about all the research and discovery. It, well, you know, I mean, you can't. You can't control what you become known for, so you might as well just roll with it. And it's like, you recognize something that I have done. I hope it's useful to you. Thank you. That's fantastic. And, and you have written a book on, on better posters. Is that true? That, that is true. The book has the same name to hopefully make it easy for people to find. And it is one of only a handful of books published ever about how to make academic conference posters. Well, I think it's such an important topic. Posters are, I feel like, very accessible in the world of science communication. Whether or mm -hmm. not you ever get to the place where you can write a paper, you still probably have an opportunity to present a poster. An undergraduate can do it. A postdoc can do it. You will be doing it as a faculty member. So getting good at it seems like a worthwhile pursuit. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And one of the things that I realized when writing the book, because writing a book is kind of, without getting too weird about it, it's a voyage of self-discovery. Like, you learn so much writing a book. And one of the things that I sort of realized in going through that process is that a poster and a poster session, that whole process of designing it, the project, presenting it, all of that kind of encapsulate a lot of academia like a ship in a bottle it's everything that you have to do well maybe not everything but a lot of what you have to do in miniature so you have to worry about your project completing the project doing the data visualization putting it in a way that is going to be comprehensible to other people presenting it networking all of these sorts of things and all of the sorts of problems that you can have in academia more generally like authorship disputes, right? Like whose name is going to go first on the poster and all of these kinds of things that continue to be part of your career, they come up first with posters. And the other thing that I think is really important about posters for so many people, as you said, it's their first thing that they do. It's their first line in the CV. It's the first time that they're making professional connections as an academic or researcher or scholar, however you want to phrase it. So they're important for those two reasons. And I'll put in one more. They're probably the most common form of scientific communication on the planet. There's probably more posters than presentations. There's probably more posters in a year than there are journal articles. So we should really make them nice. Absolutely. And and having just been to the American Society for Cell Biology Conference, and, and I, I mentioned to you before we started recording, I walked around the entire hall 
over the course of multiple days looking at tens of thousands of posters, I feel like. I have no idea how many it actually was, but it felt like that many. But a hand, small handful of those people were going to give a presentation as well. And a small handful of mm-hmm. them maybe will publish a paper on that research that year. So you're totally right. Mm-hmm. This is such a common form of communication and getting good at it. I, I feel like this is the, the mode of the day. But first, you and I want to talk about some myths. I think we have a lot of misconceptions about posters and about what makes them successful and what makes them good. And I'm hoping that you can dispel some of those myths for us, just maybe walking through a few of those points. Sure. Well, I have a little list here. And I think one of the first things that I want to put out as a myth is that posters are inherently worse than a presentation, than a talk. That, you know, the poster is, oh, it's the runner-up consolation prize, the lovely parting gift, if you don't get selected to do a talk. That's how it feels to many people. It feels like the, the, the presentation has, it has prestige. You have this huge audience that all are hanging on your every word. And the poster feels more, I'm Absolutely. standing here, and it's just maybe not as good for my career as a presentation would have been. Absolutely. And I think there's quite a bit to unpack with that. And it's very clear why that, is, that myth is present. And one of them has to do with the fact that you go to conferences and they have keynote speakers, right? And everybody aspires to be that keynote speaker where they can have an audience of hundreds of people simultaneously. So you can't do that with a poster, right? You can't make a billboard size poster and put it up at the poster hall. So I like that idea though. <laughs> I like I the do billboard. Too. I've made some very big posters, I will say, <laughs> but I've never made one that you could see from a highway. But that idea of just with a talk, you have that ability to go big and to get like so many people within a conference. But let's face it, for the rank and file people who go to a conference, that is not going to be you, right? You are going to have a smaller number, a smaller audience, and you, over time, you can maybe build up to that point where you can maybe do the big keynotes. But there's definitely that sense of goals when you have those big keynotes of like, you know, that is shown up just as the top of, of the game, so to speak. And that's just a practical consideration because there's no other way that you can get that kind of audience except with the oral presentation. But it's also the case that most people as an audience member and most people as a presenter like oral presentations better. Like I'm the poster guy, right? And write a poster blog. And when I've surveyed people and looked at other surveys that people have done, usually about two thirds of people when they ask what's their favorite kind of presentation as an audience member or as a presenter, about two-thirds pick an oral presentation. And I get that. But, you know, a preference doesn't mean that it's an inherently inferior kind of presentation. And I think that there's a couple of cases where posters can actually be a better way of communicating than an oral presentation. Part of it has to do with the data that you're showing. So, if you have some sort of data visualization, which is you know, very detailed, but very large, 
a lot of times you cannot do that effectively in a single slide because everything just gets too small and people can't see it. But when you have a poster, you really can do it in such a way that people can see all of the details. So again, my background is biology. And one example of that is if you've ever seen those trees of relationships between species, right? Showing how all of the different kinds of species are related to each other, how distantly related. Those can be very complex kinds of visuals. And if you try to put that on a slide, it just sort of blurs into nothing. Really, a poster, your, that's your whole data set, right? That's the whole project is to come up with that one visualization. And you don't have like 50 experiments or anything like the, the, developing this one thing is the whole shooting match. And so in a case like that, a poster is going to be a better way to display that information rather than trying to break it apart into 20 different slides. And then the other big thing about posters, which I think is the number one advantage to them, is the fact that you can really have a conversation with other people about the work rather than a smattering of questions at the end. And maybe somebody will find you in the hall afterward and over coffee if they were really, really into it. But with a poster, you can really have that back and forth about something in a much more spontaneous kind of way. Yeah, I love that. And I'm thinking to myself, the goal of that big, large audience presentation, it feels like the outcome is prestige. But to your point, not a lot else necessarily. I mean, I don't think that the larger audience means you're going to get more collaborations out of it, right? The same three people who wanted to collaborate with you would have come to your poster <laughs> and had the conversation with you. And so, except for the prestige and the line on your, on your CV, it does really feel like that poster conversation has a, a higher chance of getting you an interaction, a collaboration, a job maybe, and those goals, mm -hmm. I think, are, are more important probably than prestige for most early career scientists, at least. Yes. And I, I certainly have examples of that. I organized an international symposium that came about because I was conspiring with two other people who had posters immediately next to me. And I sort of said to them, hey, we're the only ones here doing this topic. We should do a symposium at the next conference. And we did. And that never would have happened after a talk because we had the time to sort of chat with each other during the lulls when we weren't sort of immediately presenting our, our poster. So there's definitely cases of that. And with the, those very large talks, as you say, the, the goal there is not so much to foster collaboration. It, they're, they have a little bit different goal, right? They're meant more to be, inspirational typically for people like just to sort of like here's a really cool thing go off and be inspired they're not really meant to solicit feedback they're really for completed projects or retrospectives big picture kinds of things which again is not going to be something that a lot of people early on are going to have right so absolutely a presentation and those big keynotes have different purposes which are completely valid and, and everything, but they're, they're not what a lot of people at the, the PhD say, stage say are really, really looking for. 
It's so it's so true. And that kind of leads us into your next myth. The next myth you say is the point of a poster is to convey information. What? <laughs> okay, what I add to of course the point of a poster is to convey information. But that's kind of a trivial sense, right? But and I say it's a myth because that's that is something that a poster does, but in my mind, it shouldn't be what you think the main goal of a poster is. The main goal of your poster is to start conversations. It's to give you something to talk about with other people. The problem is that because you know we're all academics, we're all scientists, so many people think that Okay, the way to win at a conference is to have the poster with the most information, and what we end up with is something like that. And I know that this is an audio format right now, but when I have shared this with other people, and, and what we are looking at right now is a poster which has, it is the information winner. It has a huge amount of information. And people, when they saw this, were joking, like, does it come with a magnifying glass? Because it looks like there's like, there's, I think I counted, there's like 20 panels on this poster or something like that. And usually when I've shown it to people, I get an audible gasp from them. This is the one that needs to be on a billboard. This this is the billboard Uh, size poster. I I showed that to one person and they said, that needs to go in a museum, (laughs) a gallery. So people... People really take this on board. Like, I've got to show all the data, all of this. All, like, I've got to have the complete story and all the controls. And what if people ask about this? And, 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 right? And they really want to load up on information, thinking that that's the primary goal of the poster. But it doesn't matter how much information is on the poster if nobody comes to talk to you. Now, some people are just there to, you know, see other talks and it's just like they aren't there and in a case like that maybe you don't care if nobody talks to you but most people actually do want to have people to talk to about their work to show off the work to get ideas all of that kind of stuff and all you need to do is just get the spark of conversation going all of it, you don't need necessarily need to have all of the information all you need to have is something worth talking about and if you can do that then you've got a successful poster and all the other information that's good and that is something the poster does but i think that it's very very helpful to think about the goal of the poster is to give you something to talk about and to get other people to stop and talk to you so if you have a poster that doesn't overload people where they're they're looking at it like what has happened here it looks like an entire you know issue of a journal has been spewed onto the page the wall of text you're much more likely to have those conversations that's such an interesting frame too because i'm i'm thinking about how i might design differently if i if i take my existing poster and i say is there something here mm-hmm. to talk about now my poster may have been uh, put together out of a desire to show how authoritative I am. And and to your point, mm-hmm. I may have put every possible question and answer in there. And therefore, nobody needs to talk to me because I've, I've tied up every loose end. Whereas if I'm looking at it from the frame of, is there something to talk about? I may selectively lead questions. I may get the viewer to say, hey, what about 
this as an explanation for your results. And then I can jump in and say, oh, I'm glad you asked. Here is what we did to address that. But by trying to include everything, I don't allow that interaction. I don't really allow the, the person viewing the poster to bring their own creativity, their own skepticism, their own mind to the conversation. Is that kind of part of what you're saying? And one of the things that I can just roll out with that, the idea of people thinking, I have to can give this information also doesn't just apply to the poster design, but I've had some cases where it's bled into the way people interacted with me. So one conference a couple of years ago, I walked up to somebody and I actually was more interested in some of the design of their poster and the way they had printed their poster and not so much the science. So I just wanted to ask them about that. And before I could sort of get to my question, this person kind of launched into their canned speech tour of the poster. And I was kind of trapped there because that's not what I was there for. But he was just like, boom, go. It was like the, you know, the wind-up doll had like been set down and was running through, running through the loop, which honestly I felt was not very considerate of my time. And it didn't really, it just annoyed me because it's like, this is not what I am here to get from you. This is not the interaction I want to have with you. But this person, again, was just trying to go, I have information. Here is my information. Take it, please. And one of the things that I think is really important, I see a lot of people missing when they present a poster, is when somebody comes up, it, one of the first things to do is ask, do you want me to walk you through it? A lot of people do. Some people just want to read it. Respect that. But one of the things that's really helpful if they say they do want you to walk through them is ask them, why are you here? Like, what brings you to my poster? What is your connection to this research? Because obviously, in these really big conferences in particular, people very rarely just stop at posters at random. Sometimes they will. Like, sometimes there will just be one that I will know nothing about and just like, I'll walk up to somebody, just like, show me what's to learn here. I want to learn just some random new fact. But for the most part, most people are looking at posters that they have some sort of connection to. So an example I like to use is, if you do a poster on the ecology of Australian snakes, you're going to get three kinds of people showing up to that poster. You're going to get people who do ecology, you're going to get people who study snakes, and you're going to get Australians. Right? <laughs> that makes so total because sense. they're all looking for some kind of connection to that work, even if it's not a scientific connection. So it's helpful in some cases, you know, sometimes people will just stop at a poster like, I went to your school 10 years ago. This is my alma mater, right? So they're always looking for some kind of connection. And it's really, really helpful to find out when you're talking to somebody, not just shoving the information, but again, starting that conversation saying, what brings you here? What is your connection? What do you think is your connection? What I'm showing you so that we can, again, have a conversation about the, the work and what it is that we're doing. I love that. And that probably helps to minimize, you know, the, the person you walked up to and they launched into their presentation, the sort of wind-up doll effect, as you described it, that was probably nerves, right? But asking the question, what brings you here? It gives us a little moment of peace and calm and human connection. And then I can craft mm -hmm. my message. I don't need that pre-canned speech. Exactly. And that gives you an idea of ways to streamline your presentation. When you know what somebody's background is, 
it allows you to be a little bit more efficient and drill down on what is the thing that they are really there to see. Are they there for like, because they're interested in the kind of method you used? Do they just want to get a bottom line? Because most people only want to spend about five minutes at a poster. They don't want to spend a half an hour or 20 minutes. So getting them out efficiently, giving them what they want is respectful of their time. And and basically getting to the point in the conversation where they can make a break gracefully. And so after yes. about five minutes is what you're saying, give them an out. If they have additional 15 minutes of questions, that's perfectly fine, but you definitely want to give them the opportunity to move on. Um, and speaking of moving yes, on, we should move a- on to myth number three, another one I'm going to gasp at. You say it's a myth to use bullet points to make it easy to read. I love bullet points. They're so concise. The, here's the, well, here's the thing about bullet points, right? The argument is it makes things easy to read. Now, what makes things easy to read is using plain language and short sentences that are well-structured. And I think the reason that the myth, myth comes up is twofold, one of which is PowerPoint has just made bullets kind of the default way that we communicate as, as academics. And the second thing is that if you are going to bullet something, it is kind of one way that sort of people look at it and they sort of realize that, oh, if I put a bullet here and I've got this really, really long paragraph length sentence, it really looks bad. So this is the a way that people get to making things shorter, more concise and more punchy. But the bullet point itself is not helping with that at all. It's just, it's the editing that you're doing that is helping that. And so I think about it this way. Think about something that is meant to be easy to read, right? If bullet points were really helpful for making things, quote, easy to read, all of Dr. Seuss would have bullet points. All those kid books, all those popular magazines, they would all use bullet points. And I guarantee you, pretty much none does unless it's actually a list. They don't take paragraphs and break them down into bulleted sentences. I'm trying to think through it because you're, you're totally right. It is, I think conceptually, I need to separate a list from a paragraph that has been broken yep. out into single lines. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah. that's the that's the distinction i'm trying to make in my mind now and so in a lot of cases the important thing that a bullet is tr- forcing you to do which you tend not a lot of academics tend not to do otherwise is force you into shorter simpler sentences and then if a bullet point gets you there then just take it away afterwards and you're probably going to be even better off and you'll have something that will look better and read better Okay, you've convinced me. Paragraphs are still okay. I, I, for lists, I don't think you're advocating for turning a list into a no, paragraph no, no. at all. But they're different concepts. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing that I see people who just say, put everything in bullet points on a poster. And it's like, nowhere else, nowhere else do we expect everything to be a bullet point, right? That's just not how we read from experienced readers to novice readers. You know, we, we are used to sentences and paragraphs for, for the most part. And we can simplify a little bit. 
Well, and I think your next myth is also about readability and legibility. You say yeah. it's a myth that we have a 24-point minimum text size. I'm trying to picture 24-point printed I s- out. That That's pretty big, isn't yeah. it? I s- it? It is. And the, this gives me a chance to sort of really talk about just accessibility, which is a project that I am working on with some colleagues of mine. And one of the things that we got very loud and clear that people want to see on posters for people who have various kinds of accessibility needs is they want plain English, larger text, fewer words. So all of those things are about making things bigger and more visible. So as part of this project, as part of writing the book, I looked into a lot of writing about accessibility for people who do other kinds of displays like museum displays, park displays, Mm -hmm. those sorts of things where they've got signage for, you know, paintings and sculptures in a museum or signs within parks and 24 point in those practices, they usually say 24 point is your smallest text size for something meant to be read from six inches away. Wow. So, Something that if you are trying to looking at something like the Americans disability guidelines, the ADA regulations, they say if you want a sign that is meant to be read from about six feet away, which is usually the kind of distance that you're dealing with posters, the point size that they that a minimum point size for a sign from six feet away is 66 points. Wow. It's actually it's about that. It's about that. And a couple of years ago, I had some undiagnosed visual problems that I had for a while before it got cleared up. And I went around with, I had cataracts, as it turned out. I got them a little early. And so I went around conferences and I got super frustrated because everything was really small. and My vision was a little bit low. It was a little blurry. And so it's not so much that the 24 point is necessarily wrong, except that I never see any basis for it. It's just kind of a number that people pluck out of the air. But it's really more a way for me to push back and say, make things big. Like, you shouldn't be thinking about, like, what's the bare minimum? Because then what you're back to the information problem. You were asking about, like, well, what's the smallest I can make something? Because you're trying to fit more stuff on the poster, right? It's like, no, step back, make it, think about what's the biggest I can make something, in terms of text how can i get to a larger text size that's going to be readable from a further distance away by people who maybe have some kind of visual problem or it'll just make it better and easier for everyone to read well you write less stuff use smaller words and that is able to sort of lift everything up and you're able to make your poster more accessible to people who have maybe some kind of visual issue and more enjoyable for those who have Really good vision. Yeah, I think that's so true. And it's not just visual impairments. I can imagine people with mobility impairments, if you're in a wheelchair and you are at a at a fixed yeah. level, I can't I yeah. can't get higher up to go see the you know top panel in your poster. How am I going to read that yeah. from where I am? And so I think this is really a good point and it's it's a nice gift to the poster creator. As you pointed out, I don't have to write as much stuff. I can make bigger text and it's going to be both more accessible and and hopefully it'll get me to condense the mm-hmm. point of my poster. I don't have to word salad my way to feeling like I made a point. I can really do that editing, do the condensing and 
give the main ideas. Yeah. The the editing is the real skill of a poster, right? Of being being ruthless and really trying to try and figure out how much can I take away and really a lot of people say less is more, which I kind of I don't like that phrase very much because it's well more what. The thing that I like to talk about is message discipline. You have a message, be disciplined in how you're going to present that. You don't need all of the little tangents and all of these other th- sorts of things, like leave them for the paper, right? Think about one thing and really get that singular focus of what's the one thing that you really want to, to show, the most important thing. So I will sometimes say to people, look, is there anything, what's the, the biggest, clearest, most exciting, most unexpected result? Whatever the most est thing is on your poster, Make that the central point. Maybe some of the other stuff you can put in like smaller, but try and figure out what's your what's your hero graphic? What's your hero graph that is going to be the the thing that is the most worth talking about? Is the biggest challenge of any creative pursuit is removing things Absolutely. that you love <laughs> and you have to do it. <laughs> so challenging. And every creative person talks about that. Every creative person talks about that. And I, I will say this for anybody who's just looking for a shortcut and who's like, I can't go through all of this stuff. My, my conference is in two weeks. I can't do that hard, hard edit on the poster. There's a fashion designer Coco Chanel used to say, when you get dressed and you're ready to go out the door, check yourself in the mirror and then remove one thing. So if all of this is too much, Coco Chanel, remove one thing, remove one and thing. that will make your poster just a little bit. Better. Yeah, it'll put if you on the path. If everything else is too hard, just just take away one thing, right? And then the next time, if you do that poster again, just remove another thing. <laughs> Eventually, you'll get there. Our last yeah. myth is to put institutional logos on your poster. Now, you said somebody might come visit my poster if they went to the same university I did. Yes. How are they going to know about yes. me if I don't put and, my logos all over the place? Well, this is something where it's not so much that it's wrong to put logos. I see them used really, really badly. And it really is the case that for the vast majority of people, the only people that you're going to be hitting are people who actually went to that university. So I will say right now, the last few years, I've been working at a university which is in not that i believe in rankings but it is usually ranked as one of the 100 best research universities in the world so it's one that people know pretty well it's mcmaster university in hamilton ontario canada and i would be willing to bet that i would go pretty much anywhere in most of the world and i said hey do you know what the mcmaster university logo is and I would get blank stares. I could bet that Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, MIT, you know, if you ask people who are not affiliated with that, just describe the logo or put them up in the lineup and say, okay, which one is the Harvard logo if it doesn't actually say Harvard on it or Cambridge or Oxford or whatever you want? And it's like, oh, <laughs> they are not as recognizable as people think that they You're are. Right. And so... We, we might because recognize posters, the sports team mascots, but not the, the seal, <laughs> the official seal of the university. 
if if that place has a basketball team that participates in March Madness, then yes, you might be correct. You might you might recognize the mascot. But the thing that there's there's a lot of things going on here. One of which is that a lot of people chew up a lot of space for their university logo that very people people really don't care about it unless they're from your university right unless they're from that university or maybe some other weird set of circumstances but 99 percent of people when they're looking at your poster they are looking for well what's the title who are you what is what is this poster trying to show me right and your space on a poster is so so limited a university logo is very, very far down on the list of things that people want to see. So this is trying to think about, well, what does a reader want to see? I can put the name of the university on my poster, and then people will know, hey, you're from McMaster University, versus a coat of arms with an eagle on it, which is what the McMaster University logo is. I'm glad you told me, because um, I, <laughs> I would not have known. And in that sort of, of situation, I would rather use the space that it might use for a logo. I'd rather make the title bigger. Going back to what we were just talking about, make things bigger, make things easier to read. Being able to make my title larger, more visible from a distance, that is worth more to me than somebody going, oh, that's that's a university I've never heard of before. No, I, I can totally picture it. Every every poster has got 10 square inches devoted to a logo. And that 10 square inches, you're saying, could be better used in almost any other way. <laughs> and so I think, I think you're right. And people like to put them up at the top by the title. And quite often, I find like, hey, if you want to put your university logo on, quite often there's like some little space down at the bottom where it's still visible and people can, can see it. But people will, and people will not only put it on the top of their title, but they'll put it twice. They'll put it on like bookends, right? On both sides of symmetry. the Symmetry. We need symmetry. Just in case. <laughs> symmetry is important, but it's like, and you're chewing up even more space. It's like, no, I can see the logo already. You don't need to put it twice. I, I don't. You're, you're not, the university doesn't get twice as good by putting twice the logos. Well, for everybody out there doing the remove one thing exercise, I think this is a great place to start. Or if you don't even want to remove it, just move it to someplace where it's not the center. You're not trying to make it the center of attention. You can and get a lapel pin. Top space. Get a little lapel yes. pin of your logo and then everybody can see that. And wear, wear your university's t-shirt. No, dress up as your mascot. Okay, maybe that's a little too far. <laughs> I think I think that'll be a, a a topic for the next myths is dress up as your mascot. <laughs> Zen, that it was so useful, I think, for people to think through some of the assumptions we make about posters, about whether they're valuable and how they're valuable, and also about how to make them better. If people want to keep exploring these topics, how do they find your work online? Well, luckily, I have a weird-ass name. So I am not like the one of the you know, Dr. John Smith sense, like, well, which one? There's only one Zen Falks. I can pretty much guarantee you of that. So if you just look for my name, I, you will find me, I think, pretty easily. I am Dr. Zen on pretty much all social media platforms. And if you type in, just Zen and better posters, plural. I'm sure that will also bring things up. So yeah, I 
I am, this is the plus side of having an unusual name, and it kind of makes up for all the teasing that I got during you no know, grade school. I use it to your advantage. I think that's a, a brilliant idea. Well, yes. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I think you'll be back. And we're going to talk about in the next episode, we're going to talk about how to possibly win a poster competition. So stay tuned for that. All right, Josh. Well, as you could tell from that interview, I was blown away by some of these things that are supposedly myths. Uh, some of them I certainly believed. I did want to share with you, you know, he showed me this very information dense poster as we were talking. And because that doesn't come across in this audio format, I'm going to show it to you and see if you can describe what's happening. So you ready for this? I'm ready. Three, two, one. Oh my. That's not a real poster. Real poster. That really looks like uh, four posters put together into one poster. Or eight. <laughs> it's amazing. It, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link to it in the show notes, but there's just so much going on. It, it's 15 different scientific papers worth of figures. It's really it, it incredible. It reminds me if you Google image searched scientific poster, this would be the results of all those images. This would be the AI generated <laughs> version of a scientific poster. It would. Yeah. I can imagine if I saw a poster like this hanging up in the poster hall at the large scientific conference even if the title caught my attention and made me wander over to that that poster, I would probably walk right past. No, you still would be there reading, <laughs> even to this day. You know, Dan, I very much, uh, when I'm looking at posters, you know, there's only limited time at a conference when that you devote during the poster session, and you likely have an agenda of five, six posters you wanna you want to see, and so you you know you do the math and you think like, okay, well I can devote about ten maybe 15 minutes to a poster. And so um, so if you sort of take a look and realize, you know what, I think this is going to take up 30 minutes at least. I could do a PhD thesis just on <laughs> reading this poster. That's right. But but he, but Zen had some, I think, some good ideas uh, of ways we could avoid having a poster like that. Absolutely. And and I don't know about you, Josh, but um, I I don't know if I presented a poster at a major scientific conference. I think I did at one, um, but I didn't do enough of them to have this experience of like having great conversations that led to something else. Have you given posters where you made connections and something came of it? Uh, yeah, definitely. There were times in in graduate school, for sure, where you know, I was I was working on a bacterial pathogen that not too many people were working on, and so I can remember at least a couple times at a conference, either going up to someone who was doing a poster on something I was interested in, or someone who came up to me that led to us keeping in touch about something we were working on. And then I remember more recently when I was doing some research on um, on graduate admissions and the GRE, like presenting some results. And that led to some people who are interested in that topic and doing some work themselves that we ended up connecting and collaborating and sharing information. So, uh, so definitely, I, I definitely identify with the, the thing that, that he said about a poster being a much better conduit to making connections than a scientific talk, for example. Maybe it doesn't have the wow factor, but in terms of your career progression, making connections, it could be the way to go. Um, yeah, I, I just, he, you know, he mentions that this is the most common form of scientific communication, very likely, that there are more posters than there are talks, certainly, and probably more posters than there are papers. And so 
for everybody listening, this is your way of getting your research out there and for making connections. And so getting good at it, I think, is a real skill. You're going to have lots of chances to try it. So take the time to learn about it. Um, you can do that through some of the content that Dr. Fox has put together, but also by looking at posters, uh, going to poster sessions and seeing, you know, as I'm scanning through somebody else's poster, what is what is kind of a turnoff? What am I reading that I'm like, this is a waste of my time? Or what draws me to see a poster when maybe the poster next door is just not as compelling? And paying attention to some of those things, I think it's really going to help you. You know, Dan, I think framing framing poster sessions and poster presentations with that, uh, the, the, really that advantage of doing that is you're tailoring that interaction to the person who's coming up to your poster versus trying to hit some midpoint in a large room while you're giving a talk. I can tell you one thing that that sometimes I think is unfortunate, but very common when I go up to someone presenting a poster is, and maybe this is how I think I think I was this way too. People are trained to almost approach the poster like a rehearsed presentation. And so, you know, you'll walk up to a poster and you'll have maybe a little bit of an engaging introduction like, oh, hey, where are you from? How long you been doing this? Oh, this is how I interface with this. But what often can happen that's probably unfortunate is the poster presenter, you'll almost see a change in their facial expression where you can see them snap into now I'm going into presentation mode and they start giving their five minute or seven minute spiel and they start in the top or 25 corner minute. and they walk you through the introduction. And I always, like I, I've noticed in myself, I mentally check out a little bit when they shift from conversation mode with me to presentation mode. And, and now that this has really framed it in a way I hadn't thought about before that really there's no reason to necessarily do that? Why can't we just continue the conversation, alluding to the poster, jumping in into the relevant sections as they're relevant to why I'm there, what our shared interests might be, versus before we can get to that interesting part of the conversation, why do we have to go through the robotic seven-minute <laughs> presentation, which really by the end, I might have lost interest or I've run out of time and we've missed out on the real important part of that interaction, which is the uh, one-on-one -on -one conversation aspect. Yeah, that's so interesting that you can describe the the shift in context and tone as the person goes from I'm meeting you as a human being to I'm now spewing information at you. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a reason that it has to go back to that other thing, except that it's probably comfortable. That's the thing I've rehearsed. I'm a little nervous. It probably took some emotional energy to make small talk with you. And now I'm going to go to my safe place of presenting the poster that I've presented 30 times so far. Um, but yeah, I think you're totally right. When you feel yourself uh, attaching back to the structure of the poster and the framework as sort of a security blanket, notice that and think about, well, you know, you maybe you're nervous that the person you're talking to does not have the background to uh, understand your results and conclusions. But if you just talk to them and found out what brought them to your poster and what their background is, maybe you do know they, they have the background they need and you can skip to the results. And if they say, well, I don't understand this, then as you said, Josh, jump back, fill out that piece of the question and then jump back to the results. So I think you're, you're totally right. But I, I suspect it's a security thing. It uh, feels safer to go back to the thing I know. You know, Dan, recently uh, I gave a talk at a conference and one thing that was, was unique about this experience is they told me that it was going to be, I had about 50 minutes 
And because of the venue and the vibe they were trying to create, they did not want me to use any slides. Whoa, bold move. Yeah. And I have to be honest. And also not talk. (laughs) You just had to do pantomime. (laughs) Well, I have to be honest with you, Dan. I was a little bit intimidated. You know, I've given lots of talks and the subject matter I was very comfortable with and felt fine about my ability to speak on that topic for that window of time. But when they said no slides my instant reaction was a little bit of fear or panic. Like, well, I don't know. Can I really like talk about this for 50 minutes with no slides? And I can tell you, Dan, looking back on it, it was such a better experience for me as a presenter. And I think a more engaging experience with the crowd because I realized when I was like, I knew the topic, it was a topic that I was interested in and comfortable talking about. But when I was separated from the slides, just like you mentioned with the poster, Dan, thinking it as as sort of using utilizing it more as a it's a crutch, a crutch or a security blanket, it made me realize that sometimes that's how we are with slides. Like when we give a talk, for sure, you know, are the slides for the benefit of the audience to help them better understand the topic we're speaking on, or are they actually for us to help us either? you know, kind of remember where we're going. Um, And you realize sometimes the way when you're giving a presentation with some sort of slides, or I think in this case, a poster, we, we connect more or we gravitate more towards our interaction with the poster or slides and lose sight of the most important interaction, which is that of us and our audience. And so once I completely didn't have that available to me, I realized what a more what a more rich presentation and experience it was, I think, from the feedback I got from the audience than had I had some slides and had the same content. I think I did a better job of thinking about the audience and connecting with them because I wasn't distracted by these slides that were in the background. And so I kind of wonder here if the poster uh, is, is sort of the same way. And I, I'm not advocating for, maybe we should have a poster session where you just put your title but no up. posters. <laughs> no you heard it here poster. first, folks. <laughs> but uh, I think it was a good lesson for me. Well, and, the, and some of the things that you were probably describing, I, I love the analogy. I think it's exactly right. Some of the things you were describing are probably conceptual. They're, they're about ideas. And so you talking to the audience directly can convey those ideas. If you got to data that you wanted to display uh i can't imagine you trying to like use your arms to show error bars so (laughs) there is a place for having these visual aids but yeah you're totally right i think what you're describing is the the turning away from the interaction because of the safety of the visual and and trying to break that habit noticing it in yourself you're not going to do it 100 and that's fine but just notice like when your interaction with the person at the poster ends Ask yourself, did I regularly turn my back or did I regularly return to the poster because I felt nervous? And and you're not going to be able to do it in the moment, but you can do it after the fact. Well, I hope that this has been really helpful to our audience, many of whom I'm sure are going to be presenting a poster within the coming months or year And maybe this will help you to reframe how you approach your poster, how you think about not just preparation of your poster, but but actually uh, the time you spend presenting your poster to others as well. And I have an upcoming uh, episode where I've interviewed Dr. Fox about winning poster presentations. Josh, I know you've judged (laughs) poster presentations. I have. And the things you do to win a poster presentation are not necessarily the best practices for creating a poster. So I'm going to tease that. Stay tuned for that episode in the future. Are people going to send us a percentage of their winnings for uh, 
winning poster prizes. They should. For to they absolutely should. Okay. Well, well, that's something that that we will look forward to. <laughs> All right. Well, if you have a question or a topic idea, we would obviously love to hear it. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd. If you'd like to support us, the best thing you can do is to share the show with a friend, a lab mate, or your department listserv. We reach new listeners entirely by word of mouth, so we need your help. If you'd like, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the orange crush money, and thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. All right, Dan, thank you, and it has been a pleasure to record this podcast uh, side by side with you, breathing the same air <laughs> like we did for so many years. We should do it again in four or five years. Maybe we will. Maybe we will. Hope everyone is having a great summer, and we'll be back with you soon. Bye.